Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? I want to welcome Jerry Byrne, the defensive coordinator from Notre Dame to the Philosophy Podcast. Burns, you so fired up to have you on board. I'm, I'm excited, Jamie. We've had so many conversations over the last years, and now it's going to be recorded. Yeah, we should have recorded all of them, honestly. I mean, I think, I think between the, uh, the jokes and the references and the, and the X's and O's and the development pieces, there's probably a lot of little nuggets in there that I think people might want to listen to. Awesome. I'm, I'm thrilled to join the pantheon of people who've been on your podcast and, and I'm fired up, fire away. Awesome, man. All right, let's go back to the beginning. Levittown, Long Island, New York. Give us a little, give us a little flashback to the Billy Joel days of, <laughs> of uh, the Italian restaurant and, and uh, playing lacrosse back in the day with your brother on the street and Jeff Goldberg and all the other crazy Levittown guys. You know, it, you know, I think for, for the kids who are like 15 and 20 years old who may not be listening to this now, you know, it was a huge social experiment. You know, all these people moving from Queens and Manhattan and Brooklyn and the Bronx, going out to the verdant fields of former potato fields, I believe, of Levittown, that this visionary real estate guy made all these Monopoly houses that looked exactly the same right next to each other with a driveway and a garage and a tree in the front and a house on a slab. And so, two toothbrushes and two tooth, four toothbrushes already loaded. <laughs> four toothbrushes. No, we had to share them. So <laughs> you, know, you got one brother with gingivitis and it's a bad situation. But the no, it was it was just a social experiment, you know, you know, curved streets and pools and big village greens trying to replicate kind of the community of Manhattan or where people were coming from where my parents had moved from, from a railroad flat in Yorkville, which is Upper East Side, you know, railroad flat meaning long and narrow. And, you know, to be out in the suburbs and growing up there, you had the blue collar mentality of your parents. You know, as we like to say, there were a lot of, you know, the parents worked in, you know, worked with tools or weapons. And so, you know, my dad was a police, New York City policeman, then a New York City fireman, and, you know, electricians, plumbers, you know, bread truck drivers, um, plumbers, you know, cops, everybody, every civil servant. And so you got the mentality of their blue collar work ethic combined with, you know, the beauty of being, you know, six miles from Jones Beach and living right next to your neighbor in proximity. It tended to produce some real interesting characters that have filled, you know, lacrosse for the last 30 or 40 years, several of them, which I think will probably be on or will be on your future podcast. And so it created a certain mentality certain mentality and personality and, you know, joie de vivre that, uh, that only that environment can create. I, I, my first, uh, my first division one coaching assignment was with uh, a former Levittown division, uh, probably hall of famer, Mike Waldvogel. <laughs> so did you, did you ever know Mike when you were, he was, he was quite a bit older than you, right? So, did you, you know, the, I, you know, I think he was, 
No, I mean, I, I probably met him a few times. I think he probably interacted more with my older brother, Steve. Um, you know, Levittown is, you know, if you know anybody from Levittown, you identify with what section you're from. Yeah. So you're in the flower section or the bird section or, or the rock section or the whatever, the constellation Ooh. section. Where did Mother Wack live? Mother Wack was in the bird section, which, which was a blacksmith, I believe. And then I was in the flower section, which bordered ordered the uh the uh bird section <laughs> now was let me ask you like how did you actually learn how to play lacrosse back in the day was you know was it from did you did, was it like you know from summer leagues and 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 was it from youth programs I mean, what was it what was it like growing up playing lacrosse in Levittown no the interesting thing was that I didn't start playing on a team until spring of my junior year in high school wow and my older brother, Steve, who became Schmeiser Award winner and great multiple-time All-American at Virginia, he probably started his sophomore year. And, you know, football was big in town. We all played baseball and, and basketball. And it was pretty prevalent in town. But we just never – we played these other sports, and my parents didn't come from that a background or perspective to really investigate lacrosse, even though it was pretty popular. Uh, the youth uh, team in town. And then my brother Steve started playing uh, on the JV team at Levittown Division. And his JV coach was Jack Moran, who ultimate, ultimately is from, who's from Levittown, throwing out the signs. And <laughs> Jack was his JV coach. And Jack ended up becoming ultimately my varsity coach at Chaminade when I first started playing. So we didn't grow up playing. We grew up playing everything. What'd you and play? Everything? Excuse me. You played, I played basketball, baseball, you know, football, and so really didn't get exposed to it. And as a result, when you got exposed to it and, and developed a passion for it, you you know, fell in love and it w didn't feel like work. And uh, I got cut from every sports team at Chaminade, and this was the last one. And my mother, my mother, you know, my brother as an inspiration became he became very good very quickly, and was very athletic and got good coaching at Levittown Division. And my mother, you know, I got, I had gotten cut for the football team for the second time and the baseball team for the second time. I made freshman basketball at Chaminade, but got cut from the JV and the varsity team. So I was just sitting on the couch and my mom said, basically, get off the couch. Your brother figured out this other sport. Why don't you give it a try? And that's how it got started. You might be the latest bloomer of all time. You would have been screwed in early recruiting. I mean, you... It seemed like you got better when you were, like, into your late 30s. Playing. I would have been recruited for the manager. I grew, like, seven inches in a year. And, you know, they used to, at Chaminade, they used to call me the rubber chicken because I was tall, so tall and thin. I, or a zipper. I stick my tongue out. I look like a zipper. So, the, but, you know, my brother was a tremendous inspiration. He had tremendous work ethic. He, you know, incorporated all the other sports. And watching him develop and become a great player – was an inspiration to me that basically, as my mom said, that if he could do it, then I could do it. And and you're starting to figure out your body a little bit more when you get to your late teens. And I literally went through a tremendously awkward period that some people may still think I'm working through. And, uh, and again, just watching my brother embrace the sport and work at it, that kind of fueled me. And I played attack my junior year at Chaminade and didn't play at all. But I think Jack Moran kept me around because he thought, thought or assumed there was a genetic connection between me and Steve Byrne. And so he kept me, kept me on the team basically for that. And then 
uh, winter of my senior year, I, I converted to defense. I th when I think of, uh, you know, you're, you in high school, I think of the movie Dazed and Confused. <laughs> I, had, I had quite a wafro, a white afro. <laughs> going on. And, uh, you know, I, you know, growing up and I hung out with all the Levittown guys because I didn't, I, um, I, uh, just that's who I connected with culturally and they would, uh, they would rib me incessantly and for good reason for my, my hairstyle. So then it, then it went on to UMass. So what, what year were you at UMass? 83 to 86. 83 to 86. So you were a senior when I was a freshman. So I was a freshman at Brown when you were a senior and uh, who was the matchup? Was it was it you? What was it? Uh, was it you and Tom Gagnon, and then Tom Carmine and Darren Muller? Was that the matchup of the 1986 Brown UMass game? I think I, think I covered. I think I covered John. So John that's, a, that's a side story because we had lost to Brown three consecutive years, and we had there were twins on. You know, you, uh, we had a yeah, twin on the team whose twin yeah. brother played at Brown, and they. You know, they had some action going for three years. But then, you know, our guy kind of doubled down for senior year because we got Sal Ocasio. So I don't think it mattered much who was guarding who because we had Sal, and I think you guys probably maybe had Sky Lohan or somewhere around that time, and two great goalies. But, you know, I think uh, Rich Abbott, you know, kind of put everything on Sal Ocasio. But I think I covered John Keogh and, and Tom Aldridge covered – Tom Gagnon and, and, and D. Mulls, who's two, his son is a senior at Notre Dame, by the way, so I see him all the time. Oh, no way. He's at my house like seven times a year because he comes in for every home football game. I love but that. I think Darren and Tom Carmine were battling it out for sure. That was great. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, in the early 90s, I created this video series. Remember that? It's called the USA Lacrosse Progression. I do. And I've got clips. i got to dig them up. But I have clips of you playing defense, <laughs> you know, throwing all the junk, the ding-dongs, the no. over-the-heads, the, you know, the, the deep, deep wraps. No lead wraps. I, I, I'm, pre I'm, I'm pretty sure I had all those videos removed from YouTube because <laughs> hypocrisy – is probably the most important trait of any defensive coach of my age. You know, do what I say, not what I did. <laughs> no doubt. And so, you know, you, you, you coached a little bit right out of school, right? You were at Notre Dame and got your master's, and then you went into the business world and spent how many years, you know, out of coaching? Um, 12? Probably, yeah, 10 to 15, somewhere in that range. And then you, you, you did end up playing in, in the MLL um, in 2000. In one, 2002, the first couple of years? First, three, first two years, yes. And so and how old were you, like 35, 36 years old? I was 30, 39, 40. <laughs> that's unreal. So you played in the MLL, and, and, and that's why I was referring to you as like the latest bloomer of all time, because, I mean, I think you actually just kept getting better right until your, until your late 30s, and you got I a chance still, to play. I still had, my weighted, still had my weighted shaft. I remember we had just adopted two children. We were living in southern New Hampshire. I had, I had been, uh, I, uh, you know, I was friends with Scotty Hiller and, you know, hadn't played and had basically stopped playing, but I was interested. My kids were excited about the prospect of it. And I remember I, I, I worked out for like, like hard for like 120 straight days just to be, just so I wouldn't embarrass myself. So, but that, that was, that was great. I mean, that was, that was great fun. It was different. The league is obviously completely different now, but, um, you know, I think, I think a key thing for any, you know, guy who at any level in coaching is 
can't ever lose that competitive mindset. And, and, and for me, not in, hey, I'm a ruthless competitor in everything that we do, but just a mindset of acknowledging that it's a, there's a win and a loss. You know, I, I, Petro and I were doing the thing this past weekend, and, and you come around the agreement of there's a scoreboard all the time, whether it's a visible scoreboard or a mental scoreboard. And that is, you know, I never want to stop competing because it, I think for me, whether it was the MLL back then or just, you know, playing squash or pickleball or basketball, now is that, you know, besides trying to stay fit and stay young, it's also gives you tremendous empathy around what you're asking your players to do. Cause you know, that it's not easy as saying, telling someone to do something and they do it. Like when you're still doing some of those things yourself, not at the same level or at the same level of agility or athleticism, but you know how hard it is to in basketball to double team someone when you're exhausted. Yeah. So hard to, so hard to dribble out of a double team when you're surrounded and sometimes it's easy to jump and try to throw a jump pass and it gets picked off and it's a layup at the other end. And so one of the reasons I do still try to remain active is to maintain that empathy for what you ask your players to do. The Philip Crosby podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 coaches training program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. It's pretty awesome. Uh, before we get into some current day stuff, I want to talk one more. I want to make one more point about your business background. So you got you got your business school degree right at Notre Dame. Yes. And then you went on and um, you were at. I don't know. Uh, give us a little bit of a history because. For one thing, when you were at Brian, and what was your what was your title at Brian at the time? I forget. Like CEO, chief sales and marketing officer. I just remember my son had just been born. We were doing a deal with you guys with the Run and Shoot Lacrosse Company, and you gave me the book Good Night Moon, for which 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 we which ran through and was read to all of my children to this day. You know, you still we still give the uh, the old uh, love you to the moon and back and uh it's so funny that you know like you actually gave that book to uh to us back in 1998 very thoughtful but i think that's sort of the reason why i want to bring up your business career is because i think you've done an amazing job of um of applying those principles to coaching uh, from a marketing from a building of a brand um you know whether it's your presence on social media uh the youtube uh you know notre dame um tv that you've created and all that stuff and i just want to Hear a little bit about that stuff. You know, I think it, you know, I think it starts with, you know, with, with Coach Corrigan. When I coached with him when I was in grad school and then left for, you know, 12 or 13 years and then came back is that, you know, pretty, for most of that time, we were the, the westernmost outpost. And so, you know, I think his mindset was always, hey, we have to be, you know, whether it's generous around recruit, uh, scheduling, you know, to get people to come out and play us and you know, outreach to high school coaches and youth coaches in the Midwest. And so that, that kind of that mindset was always kind of pervaded the program because that was his view of, hey, just because we're out here, one of the things that he would say is it could be looked at as a, as a negative. Well, let's turn it into a positive because of where we are. And so that was kind of a prevailing mindset. And then, you know, the execution, you know, and, and his – is kind of 
and empowering me to do that was just an extension of that mindset. It's just more with, with technology. So, you know, most of my professional life was in kind of the, in, in communications and marketing and in brand management. So, and what that, I think what that brought more than anything was an understanding of all the people who have influence on decision or have opinions on things. So if you think about recruiting as just a player, that's a narrow view of looking at, you got to fold in parents. Sometimes it's multiple group of parents because a, a family isn't always the perfect nuclear family. They might be divorced or separated and you have aunts and uncles who played. So you have a pretty broad audience of people that you're trying to communicate with either electronically or personally, high school coaches, club coaches, sport coaches from other sports, the JV coach, the freshman coach. So we see all those people as some, you know, people that we want to communicate with, whether it's through our social efforts or through the videos. And so I think more than anything, it was an extension of an existing philosophy that Kevin had in place. And then just, all right, how do we apply that using the newest technologies and, and being really honest to what Nerd Aim is about, being really clear to what Nerd Aim believes in and being really specific about what it's like to be when you drill down to be a part of our program. We didn't want to be hiding behind some curtain and creating some sort of bait and switch. Like we wanted to be really honest and candid about this is what our guys go through on and off the field. This is how we travel. This is how we do service. This is how we engage with all the different people that surround our program. So that the motivation was already there. The perspective was already there. It was more of just an execution and then taking you know, my background from, from grad school, being on an ad agency side, being on the product side, moving up through the ranks, and never forgetting how important, you know, the people that you're trying to communicate to are. And all those people have people that are talking to them, and they're important as well. And so we try never to forget that. Now, you, you, had, you started a business too. Wasn't it the last thing before you before you, you left Brian and then before you got to uh, Notre Dame, didn't you have your own business there for a few years? Yeah, so I had a consulting business. I got uh, right around the time that we adopted Brandon and Pierre and brought them into our family to, to join Rory, our biological daughter, is I had gotten let go from Cybex, which was a you know high-end commercial fitness company. Oh, yeah. And I, I had a the ability to not have to work for a year. And that's how I got back into coaching. And during that time, I started a consultancy and, you know, working with sporting goods companies and lacrosse companies and things like that. And again, that was a great kind of transition for me. And I got back into coaching because of the town I was living in and because of my severance package, I didn't have to work. And I, so I got to take care of the kids for that, for that year, the, the high school in the town that we lived in, I got, let go and I just volunteered and that's how it all got started again. That's how I never went back to the corporate world. I really wanted to go back, but I enjoyed kind of reconnecting with the kids and, and, you know, listen, kids want kids, you know, people are always complaining about this generation, but they're like any other generation. If you can articulate a standard and a clarity of expectation, expectations and values, they'll reach for it. They may not always get there, but they'll reach for it. And that's kind of what was, was awoken in me. And then I just went from there. Awesome. So, you know, how would you describe your defensive philosophy? Um, that, you know, I, that you're, you're not in as much control as you think you are. And because you're, as a coach, and because you're not as, in as much control as you think you are, you need to really endow your players 
with the control. And I would also describe it as, as a belief that, that everybody gets run by pretty consistently, more than you think, even, even the best players that you've ever coached. So, you know, preparing for the kind of intersection of your opponent's greatest play and your, your player's biggest mistake, I'd say that'd be a way to describe kind of the foundation of, of, of what we try to prepare for, that your opponents are really good and sometimes they make really, and a lot of times they make really good plays. And even if your player on ball is doing, or even off ball is doing a great job, they can still get good opportunities. So it's less focused on matchups. It's less focused on dogmatically imposing your physicality and mentality on somebody. It's a recognition of the, of the skill and the ability of your opponent and a real focus on less on the on ball because there's, there's an unpredictability of that, of what your opponent may do from a dodge standpoint. And, and you have much more control over the other five guys. Like you can, I think you can affect the improvement of those other five guys in their off ball decision-making and movement more than you can do a thousand hours of ladders. And you may not necessarily make that big of a difference of a guy's on ball ability. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Yeah, but yeah you did. I thought it was great. I mean, the, the idea of empowering the athlete and, and, you know, having, it's been a while, but coach, coaching against you and, and, and thinking about like, you know, a lot of times you could go in like, all right, you know, they're, you know, they're going to slide to you because this team slides or, you know, they're not going to slide to you because this team doesn't slide or they're probably not going to slide to so-and-so. And, and when you, when you compete against Notre Dame, you know, it's more about, about, you know, the word you use a lot is processing and, and, and people have to be able to process situations quickly and read the quality of defense on the ball. And I just, I find it really, really interesting. And I think it, I think it's really cool. When I described, when I, when I agreed to be the defensive coordinator for our friend, the late, great Dave Huntley, um, I told him about your philosophy because I'd sort of spent a couple of years, you know, talking to you and trying to copy it. And uh, he loved it because he loves read and react on offense. And he's like, that's read and react. That's read and react defense. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, um, you know, I think it's, it's really refreshing. And I think it's fun. And I think it actually has more upside. And, you know, I think it, it, it you know, listen, Notre Dame had always had a great tradition of defenseman Mike Iorio and, and, and uh, DJ Driscoll and, sure. you know, a bunch of other, and great goalies. And so just kind of try, do, trying to do your best to continue on, on that. And the, you know, the, you know, your opponents are good. You know, you got to start with a, a tremendous amount of respect for your opponents. They're, the unpredictability of moves and the creativity of offensive players, that's tough to predict. But there are signs, you know, so we work on a lot of, on signs of a guy who's about to get beat. You know, what does that look like? What are some of those signals? You know, how, how can you read that as an off-ball um, player? And, you know, this concept of, you know, a dual directional responsibility. On ball, my job is to do the things that we teach you on ball. And, and because of that, the guy on ball knows that if I do this as well as I can for as long as I can, even if the guy gets by me, the dual directional responsibility and accountability that there's five other guys who are going to do everything they can to recognize that. So that interconnectedness, I think, can, can make it look more complex, and, but also not complex and you can't understand it. But, you know, the, the Dodger doesn't have some of the, hey, if A happens, then, then I know to feed to B. Or if you know B happens, I know C or D are my pass options. That that's harder to predict if you don't know 
every time you do your move, this guy's going to slide to you. Sometimes he will, sometimes he won't. It's really a function of what that guy sees. And then the kind of the domino effect of the exterior communication to the interior and then going back in the other direction. And so that, you know, so it puts less responsibility on the ego of the guy guarding a guy. All he has to do is best for as long as he can do it. And, and that, I think it helps take away the stress that maybe an on-ball defender felt in high school. Maybe he liked that part where he was the center attention, but breaking that mentality is, is, is probably the hardest thing about teaching the way that we teach. You know, the, 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 uh, what I was sort of referring to, you know, creates an unpredictability for the offense because they can't predict whether you're going to slide or not. They, you have to kind of work really hard to beat somebody and, and draw a slide. And you talked about the unpredictability of, you know, the on-ball defense, but I've also heard you talk a lot about the importance of predictability and how important it is to be predictable. Um, talk a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, we try to keep things simple on ball and, you know, the simplicity also leads to, you know, uh, like some dominoes, like if I, how much of a back of a guy's jersey am I seeing? If he's squared up on him, he's probably he, he's guarding top side and underneath. I start seeing, we used to have logos on our jerseys, we used to have the Notre Dame monogram on our sleeve. And I used to tell guys that when you start seeing the monogram in the sleeve, that's a guy that's either going to get beat topside or on an inside roll. So you got to be prepared for both of those things. We talk a lot about, you know, in a V-hold and, and pokes and digs, you know, how much of the, the top part of the shaft from the guys, from the defenseman's top hand to the neck of the stick. When you start seeing some of that, that's a guy who's getting beat top side. We, we work on, you know, signs of a guy who's about to get beat because that helps you be there right at the right time when you're going to help a guy. So where your head is located, you know, kind of V-hold and butt-end drive, you know, where are my hands relative to the front of my feet, you know, so I can drop step and things like that. So the, the V-hold is really important um, because I think it's an indicator of a guy about to get beat. Yeah. And the, and the idea like, of like a barometer, almost like a, almost like a needle in a car, like some sort of like Geiger counter where you're coming up against uranium or something. And like the flux capacitor. Like the pulse capacitor, a nice movie reference. Flux, nice. flux capacitor. Flux capacitor. 100 million gigawatts. <laughs> 1.21 gigawatts. Um, The Phil Crossfee podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son must utilize video to learn his game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3video.com. Um, yeah, I mean... The, the V-hold is something I want to ask you about because there's so many people out there that, you know, listen, there's nothing wrong with a butt, butt hand hold, right? A cross check hold. But right. there's something about the V-hold with Notre Dame that intrigued me because of, A, what you just went over, which is like it, it's an indicator. Uh, it's a needle. Uh, and also the element of ball pressure. Um, and we talked about this when we were at lunch with BK a couple of weeks ago. Just I, I think it actually develops players, too. It allows you to use leverage and um, maybe just chat a little bit about that. Um, not to say one hole is necessarily always better than the other, because I think you got to do both, but that's kind of my point. Yeah, you know, I think it's that 
you know, um, it, you know, I don't think I ever beheld anybody. I, you know, I mean, that's the funny, right? And in our generation, you know, our generation wasn't, you know, we were just trying to take the ball away from everybody. And the attackman didn't have to worry about getting, you know, they could inside roll and not worry about getting double teamed. And so, it, you know, I understand that there's a, it's awkward for some guys, particularly if they've never done it. And so you'll, you'll see some of our guys are more butt end drive, righty against righty, closer to GLE than others. Some guys, if they don't have the feet, they do it a little bit earlier. I, I like the fact that it creates double and triple move Dodgers because all of that stuff, I think, shrinks offensive space. And if you're a, a dodge and read offense, as most teams are, the more moves you make a guy make, the less, the harder it is to read. And now you're reading and rereading and re-rereading and the offense gets, you know, smushed together and that may, you know, smushed together offense feeds defense. And so, you know, we're, you know, the concept of, of the V-hold requires some, some practice and, but it is that barometer, it is that needle. It's a, it's a, it's sending a message to your off ball defense about where is the guy going to get to on his dodge? Is, is he stepping away? Is he running the arc? Is he inside rolling? Is it fake inside rolling and stepping away? All of those things, the, the, the head of your stick gives it that indicator, which if, if, if we're fixated on the other five defenders off ball, that's why you're doing it. I don't really, I, I, I care that you do it and I care that you want to do it, but you're going to do it because it's all about the other five guys. It's not about you on the ball. It's about the other five guys. It seems like um, we talked about this the other day too. It seems like um, you know the the V hold also allows for great ball pressure. You know, I mean, it's just like it's harder to feed. Um, it also, I think, it develops players to have a feel for using their sticks. You know, in, in, in to to maintain their position for leverage and things like that. Do you mind chat, talking a little bit about those concepts? Yeah, listen, the, the, there's nothing more impression. There's nothing more important than ball pressure you know, and, and consistent ball pressure. So um, versus temporary violent ball pressure, which I think you get with some other things. I think the V-hold allows you to, to be within a range of ball pressure that allows you to be disruptive. And again, we're not, again, we have, it's not, not perfect, but I, I, I think it's really important that your guys understand the logic of why you're doing things. Like this is a generation that's really smart, they're really inquisitive, maybe too inquisitive. You know, we grew up with a coach said, you're going to do it this way. And you're like, why, coach? Because I told you to. And, you know, this generation, for good or bad, they want to know why. And I got no problem with that. And so you, and using film and demonstrating and doing drills that, that show the difference between why, if a, if a certain kind of hold was used here, why it would have helped us and why it would hurt us. And now they understand it intellectually. They understand it emotionally. They understand it interpersonally, why it means, you know, relative to the other five people playing off-ball defense. And now you've given them these three opportunities to really embrace why we're doing stuff. And if they get all of those things, they'll do it to the best of their ability. So the V-hold is, is, is consistent ball pressure in my mind more than any other hold. And the, um, you know, I think it's, it's, a, dis it's a disruption. And which means it takes away his hands and eyes. And again, it's the indicator for the amount of help that we have to deliver. I was a lefty attackman 
and I rarely went against lefties because there weren't that many lefty defensemen. But I remember any time I would go against a lefty defenseman, they would V-hold me. I hated it more than anything, especially as a lefty, because I never – I always, always feel in the cross-check and the slap. I never felt the – the, the, the V-hold that all of a sudden was so deep on you. Uh, I think righties are a little more used to it. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I like, I like lefties against lefties, you know. I, I, for some reason, I, I like lefties on lefties. I don't mind righties on lefties or lefties on righties, but I really like lefties on lefties. And the, you know, consistent ball press, you want to be a nuisance. So being a nuisance and being disruptive at a consistent level within a range that's disruptive enough versus violent intermittent ball pressure. I'll take the first one all the time. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and it limits penalties. And it also limits penalties. Yeah, right. No doubt. I mean so, that guy that guy in the picture that maybe other people can't see. Yeah. I think he had like I think he had like five penalties in his college career. <laughs> Seriously? In four years? Yes. yes. Five all penalties. Against what teams? I think he had two holds against Lyle Thompson that are debatable. And, uh, but I think the internet was calling for that. There was a debate about V holds versus wards at the time. Um, I think two of them, two of those, uh, and he wasn't, I mean, he was physical. So people like think about, oh, you're not physical if you're doing this. No, you're physical enough. So yeah, I think Landis had about five penalties. In his <laughs> it's unreal. Um, I am. Uh, did, did Kevin tell you I'm going to be making it out for practice in January? I I did not. You know, are you coming to our coaches clinic? No, I'm going to be there the week before. But I'm. You oh, know what I'm doing, Jerry? I'm I'm renting an RV and I'm taking 12 days and I'm going around to practices. The 12 days of Jamie. It's going to be my uh, uh, my excellent adventure. You know, oh, that's a, dude. You got a video. You got. You should have just have a like a like a chest chest cam and just that's. Oh, you're going to film the whole thing. It's going to be unbelievable. But sponsored I can't by, to, sponsored I can't by what beef jerky company? <laughs> um, I'm, still looking for, uh, I'm still looking for passengers. I'm trying to figure out who wants to go on this excellent adventure with dude, me. That, dude, that is tremendous. You should throw that, you should throw that out there because that is – man, that's tremendous. That, that, that's going to be a fun trip. So how many places are you going? How many places? You going to 12 places? Yeah, it's not all it's not all confirmed, but right now it looks like uh, Michigan, Notre, uh, Northwestern Michigan, Notre Dame, uh, Ohio State, Cleveland, Albany, Manhattan, Virginia, and um, and High Point is what I've got lo locked in so far. I got a few more days. I got to figure it out, but um, it's going to be honestly, it's going to be the greatest twelve days <laughs> of lacrosse conversations and. Is, is it gonna be like this? Is it gonna be like the scene from Swingers, Vegas, baby? <laughs> you get like three hours in, you're like Vegas, baby. Are we in Vegas yet? It might be more like Dumb and Dumber. I'm gonna be like, on, you know, like, <laughs> you go ahead. You totally redeemed yourself. <laughs> Sammy Samsonite, something. That's so slappy. <laughs> but um. But, but I can't wait to come uh, to a Notre Dame practice. And, and what, what, one of the things I love about watching your guys' practices is I love watching the way you run your defensive drills. And for people out there that haven't been to a Notre Dame practice, you use the middle of the field and you do, I don't know, if you have 25 or 30 minutes, you probably do five or six or eight different 
defensive drills, mixing a little stick work here and there. Um, but uh, the way you run it is, is without goals, without creases, uh, in small groups. And really what you're doing is scaling reps uh, and also empowering the players um, to learn how to run the drills themselves while you kind of oversee it. I just want you to talk a little bit about, you know, why you do that and some of the great value in that. I mean, I, there was no mindset around that. You have, you have the space you have and you have the time you have. And, you know, the stuff, the stuff that coaches know is only valuable in the sense that your players can understand it and replicate it and, and communicate it and connect with the guys they're doing it with. So less interested, and I think Coach Gargan's like this as well, is that it's, it's less about what I know. It's more about what you guys can get and embrace and execute independent of you. So, and so doing it stuff the way that we do with the space that we have allows you to create, you know, a, a, a constant flux of groups. So we'll have some groups where we'll have all the seniors together. And then we'll have, but most of the time we do it, if we have a five person drill going on, we got one or two upperclassmen and the rest are underclassmen. So now you got this ecosystem of guys and that senior may be a star or he might just be a, you know, guy who's on your scout team, but he still has the same mastery intellectually of what we're asking him to do. He just maybe can't do it to the same physical level as the starter or the All-American, but he still has huge value, huge, you know, kind of IQ that we need him to impart to the younger guys. And so instead of having a lot of drills where people are waiting around, we're manufacturing drills based on sets that we see, certain Dodgers that we're going to see, the action within the action of our future opponent the consistent things that we're going to, that we come against against every opponent, whether it's two man or set play end line plays or, you know, stick work stuff. And so the, the, the genesis of that was more, mostly the space and then back to, okay, what I know doesn't matter as much as what you need you guys to know. And the only way they're going to get to know it is if they rep it and the only way they're going to get to know it, they got to rep it and understand the pressure points within the action, within the action of the different stuff that we're, teaching and so that is what drove it and now unintentionally the byproduct has become the, this the the community the level of communication it requires to have a you know six different groups of three or four guys going on from box to box in the you know horizontally in the middle of the field where you're just surveying it like quality control but you're listening for your upperclassmen teaching it in the way that you would teach it Right. But now you've got, you got all these acolytes, and they're doing it, and they're in charge. And, you know, I think that if I do a good enough job coaching our guys, by the time April comes around, I could miss three games, and they could totally get it. And so the, one of the byproducts of it is it creates a culture within your culture of your defense of the way these guys talk to each other and critique each other, coach each other, help each other improve through multiple reps in a variety of ways that replicate the game. And so that was an unintended byproduct is that the, our communication level went through the roof and the relationship between them and the D middies and the long stick middies just went off the charts. Yeah, I believe it. And, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I saw this, um, you know, this peer, learning pyramid and at the bottom was like, you know, being lectured to and somewhere along the way it was, you know, doing or, you know, um, like watching a video and at the very top, you know, was teaching. 
and we all know that as coaches, like we never learn, we, we, the more we explain something and teach it, the more we understand it. It's like writing a paper, you know, I mean, it's like doing a presentation. You, you understand the material when you start to really teach it. And I think that, you know, part of your unintended circumstances of, Hey, here's our space. Hey, we are not going to do one group of five with 20 guys standing around. We're going to do four groups of five. And now we're going to have these guys, you know, run the drills and teach the drills. And all of a sudden their, their knowledge and understanding goes through the roof when they're actually. Totally. And, and, and we like, we don't even do that many stick handling drills because we have our defensemen and D middies play the role of the offensive players. And so they're getting their reps that way. They got to learn how to dodge as defensemen anyway. So they're playing the role of, Hey, I want you to split and roll or I want you to swim and roll this guy. And they're never going to swim anybody, but they got to learn how to do these things. So we, another unintended byproduct was I don't have to do as many stick handling drills because they're getting it within the drills because they're playing the role of the offensive players. And so now that means just more reps for how to cover and how to slide and how to double and how to, you know, play off ball space and, and things like that. So, and then having them have to teach each other how to do it raises their confidence in the, as you were saying, in the, the command of the subject matter. They, they develop tone and authority and the clarity of our language over and over again so that you're practicing language in a non-threatening environment unless it's a really angry upperclassman, which I got no problem with either. But they're doing it in an environment so that when they go to small group stuff, six on six, full field, it's just it's, it's pieces of the piece of the part of the whole. So I'm, I like getting really granular around the stuff. And, and may, I may not always get to put the parts together into the whole, but they've done enough of the parts that they can reassemble it. Yeah. One of the things that I think is uh, really interesting too, as I've heard you quoted as saying, we don't, we don't do one-on-ones. You know, and when you, when, when you say that in the traditional sense of, you know, four corners, one-on-one, let's work on our one-on-ones. But yet you probably do more one-on-ones than than most because of the way that you scale your reps yeah you know like very rarely i mean we'll do i mean it's just not that one-on-ones are not that but it's almost like doing one-on-one defense you know you got tall guys you got short guys you got thick guys you got skinny guys you got lefties and righties guys from big time programs guys from programs never heard of it's like you know but most guys are you know their ego is driven like i want to guard guys as long as i can and as well as i can so they're, they're into that. They're going to be doing that whether I tell them to, to do it or not do it. And so, like, it comes back to one of the first things you asked is that I really feel you can move the needle on the other five guys much more than you can affect it on with an on-ball guy. And we have, you know, we'll, we'll do one-on-one work. And, you know, that's a little bit of an aberration saying we just don't do yeah. one-on-ones. We're right. trying, trying to make a point about yeah. the importance of one-on-ones or the lack of importance of one-on-ones. But they're getting one-on-ones when we do our drills now – it's it's some other defenseman doing it, but I'm not saying they're doing the split role better than Brian Costabile. But <laughs> one of the things I tell our guys is that you need to do this at a level where you get benefit as a Dodger, as a defenseman, having to escape an attackman, and you need to do it to a high level that it puts a challenge on our guy. You know, just like in football, you don't see tackling every day. They're doing some of the, the kind of skeleton tackling drills. That's what this is. And I tell our guys, like, you got to do it at a really high level because it's conditioning, it's footwork, it's, it's escaping and dodging, all the stuff that you want to get better at anyway. But you also really need to do it for that. You need to make that as, as good as it can be in the skeleton dodging drill that we're, you know, 
hey, we're doing a four-on-three perimeter rotation drill. That, that guy's going to get eight four-second one-on-ones in about 60 seconds. Right. So, yeah, I guess we're not, like you were saying, we're not doing classic one-on-ones, but they're getting a volume. So is a true one-on-one against a really good midfielder and you get your rep and then you go wait 75 seconds, is that more important than a 60% value of a defenseman doing that same dodge but you get eight of them in 60 seconds i don't know i i i ceded to the second one yeah no doubt i mean well because the, the fundamentals of what you have to do are exactly the same and sometimes it's important to slow down and do it you know you think about yeah. you know your your holds and, and your pokes and your lifts and your approaches i mean when you get into a live one-on-one against brian costabile all you're trying to do is just survive it and dominate it and win it. And, and, and that's when your technique goes out the window. When you try. It's, like, it's like telling someone to communicate at full speed right off the bat. You know, you can't do it. You got to do things slowly. And that leads me into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is, you know, that you guys, you guys slow things down at 60% speed or even 40% if you need to, allowing people to actually learn how to communicate. Communicating in real time is incredibly difficult. Communicating in slow motion is a challenge. Um, talk about how you sort of slow things down and, and, and how you do that. I, I think, you know, one of the things that we say is, like, if you can't be loud, you can't play. You know, Coach Cargan and I are always saying, better to be loud and wrong than quiet and right. If you're quiet, if you don't say anything, now we have to read body language. You know, there's too much interpretation going on there. And so – you know, again, it was it was it was more just a you know everyone knows communication is important in sport and in defense and it, again just almost like an unintentional byproduct like all right you know we started becoming a really good communication team as a function of like you got five six groups of four drills going on and I'm I'm in, in the middle and I can't hear anybody and you're like listen this drill has communication points so you you start requiring then you start telling the oldest guy in that group is like, that's your responsibility. You should set the tone, not in sort of some sort of philosophy, but the tone of how you're saying the three or four things that should be really clear in that drill. So again, another nice byproduct, you're watching all these drills going on and it's like quiet as a, it's quiet as a church in there. And then you know, something's missing and then you say something quickly and then you see it happen. And, but then it's also the, the emotional part of how people learn you can show them on a board, they get it intellectually. You can walk them on the field, they get it kinesthetically. But until they understand the price and benefit of things done and not done on, a, on an emotional level, it's hard for them to get it. So I, I really believe that like most guys on our team or on any team, they can explain to you, you know, all right, let me lay out what should happen here if they're watching a clip or watching a drill. But like you said, you get in the game and the, the communication is the first thing to go. By explaining to them the price and the reward or the price and the benefit of doing it right versus doing it wrong, the difference can be, I tell our guys all the time, the difference between good defense and great defense is about the size of a carpet square. That's the difference. That's the difference between closing out and getting on a hands. It's the difference between being in a skip lane and narrowing it or made, making it larger. You know, so I got all these, you know, examples. And then you can take that, show that on film and show how the drill that we're doing is trying to teach that. So they start getting it emotionally in the sense of, if I don't do this, this hurts my team. 
And so the more that they can embrace that, because there's so many really good coaches, so many different ways to, to, to you know, slice this stuff. But yeah. you get your guys to understand the cost of not doing something, they'll start doing it in a way. They might not do it perfect technically or athletically, but they'll be about doing it as well as they can. And they're narrowing that square closer to good defense versus great defense. And, you know, I think that is, you know, what I try to do as much as possible, which is get guys to understand why we're doing this and the emotional benefit to doing it and why it's good for our team and why it's when you're one of the other five guys, why it's important for you to do those things. And when you're you're one of the one guys on the ball, how all of a sudden you can't be like, you know what, I feel like throwing a ding-dong here. (laughs) So if you get out of character, that unpredictability that you alluded to earlier affects the predictability of the decisions that the other five guys have to make. No doubt. So uh, we were talking last week about communication and uh, and about you had a great a great analogy for you know when you use somebody's first name, you're out in the playgrounds and all. Yeah. Oh, you're out. Well, you talked about Levittown. You know the houses were right next to each other, and everybody kind of guys of our age, the early fifties. Um, you know your you know your mother or your father swung open the front door, and if it was around whatever five thirty, or maybe it wasn't. If they yelled your name, you froze. Jerry, <laughs> you know you're playing wiffle ball three backyards over, and you're like, "Man, we're having liver tonight, man. Don't say a word. Invite me over to your house for dinner. I don't. Are you guys going to McDonald's, man? We haven't been to McDonald's in six months. So the concept of of teaching communication, where you're talking about using your teammate's name first, it definitely became a thing for us in the last four or five years and it's a hard thing to teach it's a hard thing to impose you really need your your team your players to because you can't be everywhere at once and you're maybe not all always in earshot to know whether guys are doing stuff right but I think that's been a big a big uh, um, development for us is making that the first thing you say because saying a lot can be saying too much can be really confusing saying something specific for somebody much like your mom or dad yelling from the front stoop for you to come, you know, and they went, Jamie, you'd freeze like you got hit by, you know, Mr. Freeze stun gun. And you were waiting for, all right, what's coming next? Am I in trouble? Is it time to come home for dinner? Did I, you know, not make my bed? You know, did I make a mess in the kid? Right, you're waiting. And tone matters. And so they yell your name and the dot, dot, dot is specifically for you versus just yelling and a lot of noise, who is it for? Sometimes things are for everybody, but mostly it's usually specific for one guy. And so the specificity of, of nickname and first name and practicing that I think has been a real, a real benefit for us in the last couple of years. It's really helped us to kind of notch up another level off ball. That's awesome. What, one time you made, you made a comment to me, it was like, I freaking hate, you know, I got your two. I hate, I got your two. I hate that. And maybe I misheard you. But what were you referring to when you said that? Do you I don't remember? know. I don't know. Man, man, there's a lot of stuff I hate. So <laughs> not, very, not, not very Christmas time of me, that's for sure. Uh, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I said that. Because I, 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 I probably meant it if I said something like that. was like, I, I don't like a lot of wasted syllables when you're communicating off ball and communicating with their defense. So 
you know, coming up with a glossary of 10 or 15 terms is probably about right. And where, where a term can evoke a situation, a responsibility, a role, a pressure, you know, words that have multiple meanings that, that paint a picture for a guy. And every team has, you know, their, their own language. But I think the best words are one, one to two syllables that help paint role, responsibility, pressure point, something to be aware of. So, you know, I just, I, I just, I don't like wasted words more than anything. Right. I thought maybe you were referring to the fact that, like, you know, sliding in, isn't linear. And, and how do you know who has your two? There's multiple people that are going to have your two. And, right. and, you know, if the guy pops up, the midi's got you. If he, he gets low, maybe the, the X guy's going to be able to help you out. Yeah, yeah that, that could be true. There's, 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 unless you play in a way where you're, you're, you're perma-sliding somebody, regardless of what happens. Um, perma-slide. Perma slide. What do I mean by that? Or no, the dreaded perma slide. Yeah, the perma slide. You know, guys. And so, yeah, that only works. You know, if if you're saying that you're always this and I'm always that, and the offenses are too good, and every, you know, when and when when a guy is dodging, every step that he takes changes the orientation. It may change roles and responsibilities. It changes skips at skip angles. It changes pressure points. That's definitely something that we really uh, harp on. Is as the ball moves, everything changes. Not everything changes, but things change. Sometimes big things, sometimes little things. But you know, offense isn't played in a static, in a static field. It's you're constantly moving. So you have to constantly orient yourself as one of the five relative to where the ball is going. What are you orienting yourself towards? You know, I, I think we orient. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to say because you have to assume certain things about different shapes from your offense. But it, it, it's probably pretty consistently around a, kind of a bull you man triangle mentality, you know, where that if you do that well, if you do bull you man triangle stuff well, either in the slide role or perimeter role, you can do multiple things. You right. can make approaches onto your guy. You can collapse inside. You can affect skip lanes. So, you know, we're, we're kind of, I'm kind of constantly harping on if you do talk about like entries and exits, you know, exit from an off ball and entry to the ball, exit from the ball, entry to an off ball thing. The more efficiently you do that, the more you can get multiple in the sense of what are the second and third things I can do? Because if you're only doing one thing, you're not doing enough off ball. And so the only way you can do more than one thing is based on how you move your understanding of off ball responsibilities and, and the set your opponent is in, where's the dodge going, all of those things constantly affect your ability to do more than one thing. And if you're only doing one thing, meaning guarding your off ball man, then you're not in a good off ball place and off all you're doing is off ball, then you're probably giving up a skip. So trying to find that optimal place where you can, where you can be multiple in an off ball role. One of the things I think about, um, and I'm curious your thoughts, and, and maybe I, so I, you know, uh, so the listeners know, like, I decided when I was coaching high school lacrosse, I was like, I'm going to learn how to coach defense like Jerry Byrne. I watched, I invited you to a couple clinics. I literally watched the videos. They were like probably an hour and 20 minutes. I pieced it together. I took notes. We talked on the phone. I came to practice. I did all this stuff. And I would hear you say things like, orient yourself. 
And I took that. And so it's funny because I take these things and just <laughs> go off in my own direction with them. But one of the, the things that I think is so important is orienting yourself to where you are and where's the goal. And I feel like not understanding exactly. Like if you said to a kid, hey, I want you to walk as far out as you think you need to go to slide. They could do that if they knew where the goal was and where they're standing relative to the goal. They could, they could, walk, without, they could walk with their eyes closed and probably get pretty darn close to as far out as you need to go or you know, not go way too far or not go way not far enough. And I think that the idea of just kind of understanding where you are relative to the net when you get started on like a slide position, for example. So I didn't know if that was part of the orientation piece that you talked about or not. Uh, you know, I probably didn't, well, probably didn't think, I think thought about it less from a sliding standpoint and more from one of the other five Got it. guys. But, you know, like orientation relative to kind of a volumetric triangle, relative to a skip lane, relative to an adjacent transfer, um, you know, but yeah, I probably think about it less around the slide guy. You know, we're we're particular about how we want our guys to stand and and where they're oriented relative to the dodge and where the ball is being carried. So it probably meant both yeah. things, but I haven't always thought about it relative to the slide guy because I just presume right. our guys. I think I I know our guys and uh, in, in the slide role are ninety nine point nine percent oriented correctly. Off ball is where we're not oriented correctly, so that's probably where my, my foundation was on that. But you know that that's a discipline, that's a stand, that's a mental discipline. It's a stance. It's a it's a it's a the mentality of that. Understanding the importance of it is, and you know that where you can. I always tell our guys that I want to be able to when watching practice film to hit the pause button and see everybody standing the way they should be standing. I and sent you a picture of that one time. Do you remember how proud I was? Of your, of your high school team? Yeah, I was like, yeah. check out this picture, Jerry. And they're all like, you know, they're all in that, in, in, in their, uh, in, you know, in their shadow of the- yeah, that, that's, 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 that's so important because, you know, as we, as we started is your opponents are so good and the offensive players are so creative and they're not going to be predictable all the time. You're, you're, you're going to go into a game and you're going to have a scouting report, a couple of bullet points. This guy likes this, like that. But then all of a sudden he, he swims and he, you know, we didn't have him as a swimmer, you know? And so that unpredictability of that has to be matched by the predictability of your stance and your communication and your orientation. If you, if you assume your opponent's really good, which you always should, and you assume that they're real creative and they're going to, they're going to play off what you're giving or taking away, then there shouldn't be any surprises because you have your that you're in the space in the moment volume and triangle athletic stance hands where they need to be head of your stick where you need to be and it's not about denying anything it's just about trying to make it as difficult as possible for them to get really good shots it's not about you know shutouts or or denying anything like that it's about just make it really hard and and you know and that's what you're all, that's all you're trying to do. And that so puts, would, go ahead. I was about to, I was about to go into another topic. So you got one more, if you want to add to it, do it. Um, you know, I just think, you know, you can't stop everything. Your opponents are really good and, you know, there's no reward in, in giving up a goal when you do everything right. But sometimes your, your, your opponents do really, really good things and you have to 
acknowledge that. But, you know, I'm like, like in film, like the guys, you know, they bust my chops pretty bad because I'm like the Kennedy assassination of clips, you know, because I think, you know, they're, you know, they come in with a 20 second clip and that's all we get to. it's it's funny they bust my jobs about it it's great i listen i know myself um you know we're using huddle and you're disassembling this 20 second clip and it's like you know this is a bruder film of of kennedy assassination and you know you got the guy in the grassy knoll you got the guy behind the newspaper in the bushes you got lee Lee harvey up in the textbook depository and so but i you know because i think it's a it's usually not some big thing that happens. It's usually a sequence of, you know, a pivot here, a drop step here, a guy drops a stick out of the skip lane and now it's a skip pass or he, he makes his, his, his exit from an approach and he stands up straight for a second. And next thing you know, the pass is getting thrown into that lane that he already should have been in. So I'm, I'm big on kind of autopsies on 20 second clips. <laughs> they, should cl- they should bring a snack if they're coming to watch clips. Well, and, 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 and that's, that's something that people, you know, I don't care who you are, if you're, if you're trying to study film and, and learn from film, whether you're a player or a coach and sharing it, you know, 20, 20 seconds really, really can take five to 10 to 15 to your whole time. You know, if you're watch, the idea of watching a game with your team, you know, yeah. that would be like a week. Yeah, you're, you're like, uh, you know, you're like Matthew McConaughey in True Detective, man. He sees everything. He walks into that crime scene and he's seeing a million things. No, you, yeah, you're exactly right. Hey, we're gonna watch this. You watch this game. And you're like, man, you better clear your calendar for a couple of days. <laughs> it's spring break. We're gonna watch a game. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I want to turn. I want to turn the topic to to you know how do you evaluate this? You know, you 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 want these guys that that can that can play great off ball defense and and, and that can process and, and and there's so many things that change every time the ball moves. You know, how do you how do you see that? How do you how do you evaluate it? How do I evaluate? In the recruiting. Oh, in recruiting. Um, you know, first off, I don't, you know, you don't judge too harshly about what, what guys aren't doing or not doing. Obviously, if a guy is playing really good off-ball defense, you, that stands out because there's not, there's, you know, the, um, you know, for, for a high school, it's really hard. I mean, you coached high school, you know, you got weather, you got you got one week of practice and then you got a first scrimmage and your first game is like three days after that. So, you know, I think the really good programs are using technology to help themselves get better year round. So whether it's sharing YouTube clips or, you know, so many college games are on YouTube that like, Hey, we're going to do this drill that I learned from the coaches convention. Let me send you the link. Here's a, here's, here's it being done well in this game X over here and not doing well in game Y. So that I think the really good teams, are not just coaching well on the field, but they're, they're doing the passive coaching throughout the year and using technology to share that. So that being said, you know, the club teams aren't practicing as much as, you know, they're just, they've got teams that cover too far of a geographic area and then the high school coaches season so condensed. So, um, so not being too fixated on what guys aren't able to do yet. If they're demonstrating you know, stance out there and, and language and gesturing and all the things that you hope for. And even if they're imperfect, they have a mindset for that. You know, you look for a certain level of athleticism for sure because yep. you need you need guys who can cover everybody for at least a couple of seconds. And so some guy might, his 
his, you know, uh, kryptonite might be a short, quick guy, but he can cover that guy for three to five seconds. And if he needs help, then they don't need help. But um, so once for me, once I get to a point where I think a guy can cover most guys, I spend a lot of time watching them all fall. And, and again, don't judge too harshly if a guy's not doing stuff. I mean, I'm not making excuses, but if it's his fifth game of the tournament and he stands up on one exit, I'm not going to like put a line through him, but because of the other 90% of him, he was doing it well. Yeah, that's pretty good. I, I hope we get 90% from our guys. And right. so, um, and so you're looking for obviously a compete level. You're looking for a certain level of athleticism. You know, if a guy's over checking too much, I, I just, I'll try to determine whether through his coach or his club coach or his high school coach is, you know, is coachable, you know, some guys refuse to change. Um, uh, we don't have too much of that problem at our place. We're in the Henry Ford school of defense, you know, you can, <laughs> you can have it, you can play any way you want as long as it's this way. So, uh, but, you know, so you're looking for athleticism, you're looking for stance, you're looking for slide decisions. I like looking for guys who pull themselves out of slides, you know, because that's a guy who kind of either, hey, I'm probably not going to get there or I don't need to go anymore and, and how I recover. And you look for off-ball communication and stuff like that. And so and it's also one of those things that, you know, from coaching at a high level, you kind of know it when you see it. So yeah. you're, yeah. Looking for, you're looking for proof, but then you're also kind of know it when you see it. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's like, you know, the, the idea of, uh, the idea of evaluating IQ, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy to do, you know, I mean, it's like trying to evaluate character. You, you have to talk to people and do your homework and stuff like yeah. that. But from an IQ perspective, you can look at decisions. One time I said to Kevin on my podcast with Kevin, like six months ago, I was like, well, what do you do if like, how do you know if a, if a kid is like, does something that's, you know, really like not even, you know, like picking up fast breaks at 20 yards or something, you know? And, and it's like, how do you know if they just weren't taught the right way? Maybe they could do it. And he was like, it's a distinction without a difference, was, yeah. was uh, Kevin's comment on that, um, which is a little bit true. You know, I mean, I think that, like, you're not going to, like, beat a guy up if he, like, stands up one time on his exit. But, um, but then again, you know, to have been well coached and kind of know how to play is going to make a difference. And then I think, you know, you've got to sort, of sort of find that middle ground, I guess. Totally. And, and, and you know, you're not going to be right every time either you know and so you know for for us and you know kind of folding them into the way that we're playing down there goes back to how we do in those drills because you know every every senior on our team was taught by when he was a freshman by some good guys you know good some guys who became great players and other guys who were just maybe weren't good enough but they had complete command and so they get folded in and so the, repl the repetitions, the replication of those repetitions, the expectations of becoming a part of that culture and an embracing of like, this is the way that we play. Even before they get there, they, got, they can go on our YouTube channel and, and, and talk to, you know, when they came on their visit and watched us practice, like this is the way we practice. This is it's true for offense and goalies and, and middies and stuff like this is the way we do stuff. So you can start embracing that mentality even before they get here you know through so many different avenues and if you really care then you're going to be doing from a defensive standpoint you're already if you're a commit of ours you're already doing our drills even yeah. before. what um what's your guys timeline on recruiting do you guys 
do you guys still recruit kids all the way through, even when they get into being seniors in high school? Um, do you have spots available? If you see a kid summer before their senior year, are you still recruiting like that? seems like you guys have been a little later than some over the course of time, and it's probably paid off. But what's your take on, on, on your timeline? Well, I think it, not, much has, not much has changed. You know, you're, there's a lot to learn about guys. You need to learn their admittability. You need to learn their personality. You need to learn their coachability. You, you know, you want to, you know, meet their mom and dad. And, 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 you know, there's really the skill, frankly, is the easiest part, you know. And, and Kevin and I agree on that. We talk about it a lot that, you know, you go, there's a lot of really, really good players. And so yeah. you try not to, try not to um, get too romanced by the skill because, you know, for a lot of schools and for probably every school, you want to get a little deeper and, and we're, I think pretty, we're, I think we're disciplined around that, that we're trying to get to the point where all those things are checking off a little bit harder on the admissions part, but I don't think our timeline has changed with the new rule change. It hasn't changed our philosophy and belief around that where parents and kids want to go is the most important part. You know, uh, you know, we know what we want and what we like, but that's also what we, we want. Other schools want what they want. Yes, right. they, yeah, the most important want in all of this is what mom and dad and the young guy wants. Yeah, no doubt. When you're watching a highlight video and you see a dude, you know, constantly just taking it down the field and scoring goals, and it's pretty clearly like, you know, good speed, athleticism, ball handling, offensive defenseman, you know, what are you thinking? What are you wishing you were watching? Um, you know, I, I kind of – I was joking with, with our guys, you know, the, the new rules, you know, reward, you know, a, a good stick handling defenseman. And that used to be the, like the least important thing for us and for, and for me. And so, you know, listen, we're good enough. We have enough good stick handlers and stuff, but it wasn't the core thing that we were recruiting guys for. Yeah. That used to bother me. Like when, it, when the guy's most energy and most athletic thing he was doing either at an event or on film was, him, you know, coming down and hammering it from 13, I'd be like, we're all the clips with that energy with you, got, you know, guarding guys and sliding to guys and double teaming guys. And, yeah, yeah, we're all, where's, we're all, where's that? Where are all those clips? And so, but, you know, I think in the new world, you know, stick handling and running, it's obviously always been important, but I think it's, it's going to become a, a more important part of our calculus in, in recruiting, but never to the point where it supersedes the, the stuff that we already talked about but yeah you get a lot of highlight videos with defensemen scoring and I'm like all right if I have to get like three minutes in before I see you guarding stuff yeah I'm like that'll usually end up with me emailing the coach saying does does this guy play defense or is he one of your your seventh offensive mini you know and so we'll get some film of a guy actually guarding people and sliding doing that stuff if there's not enough well, it turns, usually the first defensive clip is someone dodging against him and that guy, you know, skewering him without moving his feet at all and, and clearly over-athleted the guy. <laughs> uh, but it's like, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it, it was a great play in your little game there, but it may not work at the next level. Yeah, really hard. I've seen so many highlight films of kids where they don't, they don't actually know what to put in there because right. they think it, like, it's awesome. It's like, all right, well, the ball did fall out of the guy's stick, but it was maybe not fundamentally great. Or, or you, were, you were like a half step about getting back half step away of getting run by. So yeah. if you're a really good trail checking defenseman, I'm not sure if we're going to recruit you. <laughs> you know? So yeah, you, you, you know, you, that's a good point guys. 
don't know what to put in videos or they put too much of something that relatively is just not as important. So yeah, I do miss the days of the DVDs because there were usually some pretty funny highlight videos coming, coming through the transom. I had a, a couple funny ones. One, um, uh, this kid, Reed Acton, remember that kid? Sure. Reed Acton. Wow, he's been blowing up the guy? Yeah, no, he sent me a hockey fight. He's like, sorry, coach, I don't have any lacrosse films, but I do have this hockey fight. And I, I actually thought that was pretty awesome. No, I remember that. I, I got a video from a guy once that there was no highlights in the video. It was just him talking in the camera. And it had the greatest line ever. What was it? First of all, he should have been like, it was like, a, one, of, like one of those militants talking in front of like a black sheet <laughs> talking at me. And then the last thing he said, he pointed at the camera like this and said, Coach, I'll either see you on your sideline or someone else's. <laughs> greatest video ever. No highlights. It would have been the greatest video of all time if we would have just had one clip, like a fight. One and clip. I would have been like, all right, now I'm intrigued. I need to learn more about this guy. It was one great clip. One clip and him pointing at the camera saying, I'll either see you on your sideline or not. That guy would have heard from me. No, no right. clips. That was a problem. How about if he came up to you and was like, I dare you to knock that battery <laughs> off my shoulder? <laughs> Go ahead, Robert Conrad. <laughs> one of the greatest. Wow. Ever. Yeah, I tell you, man, that, that is one of the bad things about the internet and YouTube is that you don't get the DVDs anymore because there were, I used to have a drawer of them. Of, and our guys used to come in like, Coach, you get any good ones? And we'd sometimes before film throw some of these up and, you know, just, you know, got, you know, a developing area guy just murdering people on slides, just like decleaving guys, like for like 90 seconds, you're like, and you're like wincing because you know what's coming. And so we just watch those, those videos and, and then we do our film clips. With, it, that's a bygone era. It is. It is. It was a good era. There's no doubt. It's it was music, funny. Um, music genre. You know, you brought it up a second ago, but, uh, you know, how do you feel? How are you feeling about the new rules? Do you like them? you like the new rules? I'm not sure if I'm, you know, I'm not sure if I'm at liberty to, to, to critique or, you know, but I, no, I'm, I, in general, I'm happy for the new rules. I, you know, I, I think it probably could use a tweak or two from a shot clock standpoint, but it's great having something. Yeah. Because, um, you know, the, the referees have a hard enough job already and that was just a, another tough thing for them to interpret it was just in the game the game was just already hard to officiate and this that just made it harder and so i think they could probably take the earplugs out of their ears for the demands for the shock for the put it on you know um i mean it's definitely better to be you know if you're a defensive coordinator you know playing defense for 80 seconds or 60 seconds as opposed to you know having to play defense for like you know two minutes or three minutes or whatever yeah. it needs to be no, I think, but I, you know, Coach Corrigan said this is that, and this is the kind of the unknown is, you know, guys taking shots, guys taking shots they wouldn't have taken in the old rules. So, like a deep carry, guy rolls back and shoots out of a roll. That might have been like 20% of the time now. Now there's 10 seconds left in the shot clock. You take that every time now. Yeah. Because you know, you're worried about getting double teamed on the rollback or something like that. So, you know, be careful of what you wish for. You know, I think there's going to be, you know, more of surprising shots than in the past where you knew, like, that team's just not going to take that right. shot because 
it's not a great shot. It could get backed up. Could goalie could catch it. So you know, I think there's a, a law of unintended consequences about things. So yeah, am I happy with in general with the, the concept of a shot clock? For sure. I don't. I'm not like, oh my god. I think we play pretty good defense, so this should be a you know benefit for us. I don't. I'm not sure of that. We don't have enough. Right. We don't have enough data. On and people that. weren't trying to score, you know, all the time, and that's going right. to be. I mean, people are going to be trying to score right out of the gate now. Exactly. Whereas before, there was dummy dodges, and you know, like you said, you know, you might roll you back know, possession shots, yeah. possession shots over the crossbar that are automatically backed up, and now you're, you know, you're not going to be yelling at the refs anymore, and and there's going to be more rebounds. There's going to be more yeah. rebounds and chances to extend that. And so we, whether it's a surprising shot, like I didn't think that guy was going, to, that was in his range, and or he didn't want to. He was getting slid to and closed out on and, and he didn't want to try to escape, so he just took the shot, is um, the volume of rebounds, you know? And, and Or, like, hey, it's not a panic shot with two seconds left, but it's nine seconds left in the shot clock. I'm going to go all in. You could draw a penalty. All those things, you know? Uh, the, the dive, I think the dive's a bit of a nightmare right now, the way it is. But what did they put it in? And I think I think it took a complex thing and made it more complex for the referees, and and they added added an extra layer of complexity, and the fact that there could be a penalty on the defense and the offense. I mean, yeah, it's hard. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, and and you know there there's, there could be multiple goal swings on yeah. that. So, you know, so it's great for the shot clock, not so great for the other thing. Maybe it's going to be maybe it's going to bring back the old. Stand in front of the net with a couple guys, jump up in the air and shoot screenshots. You know, the yeah, old right. school screen, the goalie. You think that'll make a comeback, Jerry? I'm telling you right now, you no know one make a comeback. What? Athletic supporters, cups. <laughs> <laughs> so no doubt, put your money in 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 your bike cup stock because that could be good juggernaut right now. <laughs> but I mean, you know, at the end of the clock, I guarantee you someone's going to try it. Someone's going to jump up and see if they can score. Like, you know, the, the fields aren't as bad as they used to be, but you know. Right. No, yeah. It could hit that pebble on Homewood or, or you know, exactly. Stevenson Field. Stevenson Field didn't have a lot of grass on it either. Stevenson Field was kind of a mud pit, though. Yes. Totally. It was not, it wasn't very, it wasn't a good bouncy, bouncy grass. Right. right. Well, Jerry, listen, um, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. It was a blast to talk. Lacrosse with you as usual. Have an awesome holiday. Best of luck in 2019, and I look forward to seeing you on my excellent uh, adventure. I, I, I'm, I'm genuinely excited to see the compendium of, like you should have, like you should do like a uh, drive around when you get to some of these places. You should make them like, a, like the, you know, whatever. I can't think of the quarterback. Todd Blackledge. Go to all the different eating spots. Yeah. All the places, and you should, you know. Hey, yeah, you might we're, gonna, some, like, we're gonna film the whole thing. You should post because there might be some lacrosse guys who need a ride from South Bend to Ann Arbor, and they just get on there, just get on there for the that leg of the trip. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome in my RV. Man, Jack Link's beef jerky sponsors Amy's <laughs> excellent adventure. Hey, can we play a little hoops when I get there? You are definitely – we're definitely playing hoops. I'm not playing your full court one-on-one because that's just insane. Yeah, it's insane. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that. But we have, we have a good run Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I'm getting there on a Wednesday. I'll be there on a Wednesday. I'm, I'm there on the, the Wednesday of that 23rd. 11.30, Wednesday, run. 
And then are you leaving the next day or that day? Um, I don't know. Probably that night after dinner. All right. Well, because we play, I play squash too. Kip Turner doesn't think I play squash, and he's probably right relative to his skill set. But I've, I've taken up squash as well, so we can play squash too. All right. Well, I'm, I'm more psyched for hoops than squash, but, you know, if we're still there, we'll get it done. But, hey, have an awesome holiday. Merry Christmas. Thanks for coming on board. Tell, uh, tell Pierre I say what's up. <laughs> what's up? <laughs> See you, man. Deuces. All right, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. The Phil Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 13-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. For more information, go to www.jm3academy.thinkific.com.